I'd ask you to take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Hebrews. We started a new sermon series last week. We started with Hebrews chapter 1. So today, this morning, we are in Hebrews chapter 2. And when you get there, would you stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it together? The book of Hebrews, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. This is the holy word of God. Be seated. <laughs> this morning, as I said, we are continuing our new series on the book of Hebrews. And last week we said that, that Hebrews is one of the, the most profound and deepest books in the New Testament. But it is not an easy book. It's not a simple book. And so we all have to put our 
thinking caps on. We all have to concentrate and pay close attention. But if we do, then we will reap great fruit from our understanding of this book. And last week we began studying chapter 1, where Hebrews opens his sermon, because the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon being preached. And he opens his sermon by unfolding the glorious majesty of the deity of Christ. Hebrews demonstrates how the Son of God is categorically superior to the angels because he is the same essence as the Father. He is the creator. He is eternal and unchanging. Hebrews even calls him God and Yahweh, as we looked at last week. And now, today, we are turning to the other side of the coin, as it were. We, when we turn to chapter 2, Hebrews is now going to show us why it was necessary for the Son to become a human being. So Hebrews chapter 1 is about Jesus as God, and now Hebrews chapter 2 is going to be about Jesus as man. And we will see that Hebrews is still talking about the angels here. He's still contrasting the Son with the angels, but now in a slightly different way. In chapter 2, he's going to go the other direction. Now he's going to show how the Son is categorically different from the angels by saying that the Son had to be made like his brothers in every way. The Son did not have to be made like the angels. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, it says here. So Hebrews, at the beginning of his sermon, he is presenting the Son as both God and man at the same time. As God, he is categorically superior to the angels. And as man, he is categorically different from the angels. Last week we said that focusing our eyes on the deity of Christ is refreshment for the weary soul. But in the very same way, focusing our eyes on the humanity of Christ is also refreshment for the weary soul. For in the first place, we have a divine Savior who is more than able to save. He is a divine Savior in whom we can place our trust, whom we can cling to. But then in the second place, at the same time, we have a human Savior who is our representative before God. And so both of the necessary sides are covered. And so if we despair of our salvation, then we can look to Christ's divinity. That as God, he is mighty to save. But if, on the other hand, we despair in our human weakness, then we can look to Christ's humanity. That as a perfect man, he represents us before the Father perfectly. The theme of the book of Hebrews is this. The perfect Son of God is a perfect high priest who offered a perfect sacrifice. The perfect Son of God is a perfect high priest who offered a perfect sacrifice. And it is that first part of that phrase, the perfect Son of God, that's what we're continuing to look at today. 
For what we are seeing here in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that the Son of God is perfect both in his deity and in his humanity. And this morning we're going to study chapter 2 in three sections. We're going to highlight three points. First, our first point this morning is don't neglect such a great salvation. Don't neglect it. Secondly, everything is under his feet. And thirdly, he is like his brothers in every way. I'll repeat that one more time. First of all, don't neglect such a great salvation. Secondly, everything is under his feet. And thirdly, he is like his brothers in every way. So let's take a look at the first section, verses 1 to 4. And our point here is don't neglect such a great salvation. That's what Hebrews is saying here. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews is saying here that if Jesus is the Son of God, then that very fact alone ought to cause us to sit up straight, to concentrate, and to pay very close attention here. Because there are much greater consequences if we drift away from him. Just think about that for a moment. If Jesus was just a good moral teacher, then... We can sort of take or leave his teachings. There's, much not, there's not much consequence there. But if Jesus was a prophet, then yeah, that, that's a bit more serious. But still, we can, we can choose not to listen or, or listen if we want to. But we would have to take more careful consideration of his message if Jesus was a prophet. But what if Jesus was an angel bringing messages from God? Then yes, we would, we would tremble as we listen to a heavenly messenger, we would take that message even more seriously. But if Jesus is the very Son of God speaking, then we should fall on our faces and hang on every word that departs from his mouth. And so if we drift away from a good teacher or a prophet or an angel, each of those carries the appropriate consequence. But to drift away from the Son of God? That would be unthinkable. That's, what, that's the emotion that, that Hebrews is going for here. <clears throat> and this verse also tells us something about the situation that's going on here. It tells us something about the people that Hebrews is speaking to. Hebrews is talking to people who are thinking about drifting away. Maybe they are in the process of drifting away. Or maybe they have almost drifted away entirely from Christ already. Why? What causes this drift? It's because they have forgotten who Jesus Christ is. If you remember who Jesus Christ actually is, the Son of God, then you won't drift away from him because the stakes are too high. The consequences are too great because to reject Jesus is to reject God himself. 1 John 2.23 says, 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The consequences of denying Jesus or drifting away from him or rejecting him, the consequences are too great. Verse 2 continues, verses 2 and 3. It says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer to the question is, we won't. If we neglect such a great salvation wrought by the Son of God himself, we shall definitely not escape. Did you know that it is a heinous and evil thing to reject Jesus Christ? It's an evil thing to reject Jesus. Rejecting Jesus is the greatest evil that a human being can commit. It's worse than murder. Why? Because Jesus is the gracious offer of God's love. And when a person proudly slaps God's hand away, there's only wrath remaining. And Hebrews is making a comparison here in this verse. It's comparing two things. On the one hand, there's the law. It doesn't say the law, but that's what he's talking about. The law was delivered through the mediation of angels. And Hebrews says here that the smallest breaking of that law brought perfect justice. But the Son is categorically superior to the angels. And so the gospel that he brings is also categorically superior to what the angels brought. Therefore, Hebrews is implying here that to reject the gospel of Jesus will result in much greater consequences than breaking the law does. Let's wrap our minds around that. To reject the gospel is worse than breaking the law. That's what Hebrews is implying here. And so he says, don't neglect such a great salvation. Don't take it for granted. Don't drift away from it. Don't neglect it. Don't disregard it. Don't treat it carelessly. Tend to it. Pay careful attention to it. Nurture it. Cultivate it. Deepen it. The moment that you begin to neglect your salvation, that's when you start to drift away from it. But we always have to keep in front of our eyes that it is indeed a great salvation. It's not just salvation. It's a great salvation. It's worthy of our careful attention. The second half of verse 3, if we continue, it says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So here, Hebrews is giving us the gospel's chain of transmission that had declared such a great salvation. It began with the Lord Jesus himself. He is the foundational authority. It all goes back to him. And then it is passed on to those who sat at his feet and listened to him, namely the apostles. We could call them ear witnesses. 
And then there is us here, it says, who received the message of this great salvation from the apostles. And Hebrews, the author, he includes himself as part of this us. Therefore, he is, is admitting here that he was not an ear witness. And this is one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews was probably not the Apostle Paul. Because I don't think Paul would have said it in quite this way. But were Paul writing here, he would have said here that he too had re received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, just like he did in the letter of Galatians. But here the author of Hebrews, he's saying, I am part of the us who heard it, heard the gospel from the apostles. And then verse 4 here adds that God himself confirmed the truth of the gospel with signs and wonders and miracles. So God himself is testifying along with the Lord Jesus, along with the apostles, that this message about salvation through Jesus Christ is the truth. And take note here that, that Hebrews is using the past tense. That the signs and the wonders and the miracles were associated with the original proclamation of the gospel in order to confirm it. And so Hebrews is underlining the point. He's saying, don't neglect such a great salvation. It has been brought by the Son of God. It carries greater consequences than the law itself. It was proclaimed by the Lord and his apostles. And it was even confirmed by the testimony of God himself through miraculous signs. What a great salvation this is. Don't neglect it. And I think that's applicable to us today. Don't neglect this great salvation. Tend to it, develop it, cultivate it each day. Don't drift away from it. Don't neglect it. Grow in it. Our second point this morning, in the second section, verses 5 to 9, our second point is that everything is under his feet. If we look at verse 5, it mentions angels here again. And angels, it says, are not in charge of the kingdom of heaven, which is the world to come. Really, it's the Son who is in charge of the kingdom of heaven. The Son is the king of heaven. And heaven is this great salvation that we're talking about. The Son is is the great Savior. Then in verses 6 to 8, Hebrews again quotes from the book of Psalms. This time it's Psalm chapter 8. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? What is Hebrews doing here? Well, Hebrews, he takes this phrase, the son of man. And Hebrews says to himself, Well, Jesus is the son of man. So this must be referring to Jesus. And so on that basis, Hebrews is applying Psalm chapter 8 to Jesus Christ, who is not only the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels. He would call himself many times the Son of Man. And Hebrews is aware of this, and so he sees this phrase, Son of Man, in Psalm 8, because, ah, this is talking about Jesus. And so then, Psalm 8 is talking about the incarnation of the Son of God to become human as the Son of Man. 
So let's read it through the, the lens that Hebrews has made here. Verse 7, you, talking about God, you, God, made him, the Son of Man, for a little while lower than the angels. You, God, have crowned him, the Son of Man, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then Hebrews adds the comment. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So what does that mean? What is Hebrews saying there? It means that everything is under the sovereign control of the Son. Everything is under Christ's rule and authority. Everything is in subjection to him. Remember what the risen Jesus said in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's being confirmed right here in Hebrews. Jesus Christ rules over everything. All things are under his control. Even in chapter 1, it said, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But we take a look around at our world and we see chaos. We see disorder. We see darkness and evil. We may find ourselves asking, well, if Jesus Christ is ruling over all this mess, what's going on? And so Hebrews acknowledges that right now, the next verse, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. We don't see it. We can't see it with our eyes yet. Because that will happen at Christ's glorious return. Right now, Christ is reigning at the right hand of God. And Christ's sovereign will and divine purpose are being carried out and accomplished even in the darkness of this evil world. We do not yet see the reality of his kingly rule being carried out in our world, but one day we shall. And this is even what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We say, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And when we pray this prayer, we are longing for the rule of God to be visible on earth as it is visible in heaven. Where all of God's enemies have been laid low in the dust and subjected under the feet of the sun. Where the ransomed church of God joins the angelic choir in worship of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And so the question becomes, well, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do now? While we're waiting for the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ to become visible upon the earth at his return. What do we do in the meantime? We know that Jesus is ruling over everything. We know that he's in control of everything, but it doesn't look like it yet. But we know that day is coming when heaven and earth will be one under his rule. What do we do while we wait? And verse 9 gives us the answer. Verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so in the chaos of this world, in the darkness, in the weariness, in the heartbreaks, in the disappointments, in the pain 
And in the suffering, we may not yet see the rule of Jesus. But what do we see? We see Jesus. Made lower than the angels for a little while by becoming a human being, but now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. That's the essence of the gospel right there. So Hebrews is saying that we fix our eyes on Jesus and upon the gospel. That's what we do while we wait. We fix our eyes on the one who condescended to become lower than the angels for just a short time. And we fix our attention upon the cross and what he did there. <clears throat> for he tasted death for everyone. This means that the gospel is available for everyone. That this great salvation is available for all and freely offered to all. He did not taste death for the Jews only. Or for smart people only. Or for rich people only. Or for short people only. No, it says here, he tasted death for everyone. No human being is excluded from the great salvation offered in the gospel. And so the warning from Hebrews is that we are not to neglect this great salvation. The encouragement from Hebrews is that we have a Savior who rules over everything because everything is under his feet. And our third point this morning is that he had to be made like his brothers in every way. So that's our third point, like his brothers in every way. Did you ever stop to ask yourself, why did the Son of God become a man? Why did he become a man? Why did he take that bother? He had everything he ever needed. He was God. Why would you do that? Why did he become a man? Well, verse 10 gives us the answer to that question. It was to bring many sons to glory. And in order to do this, the architect of their salvation needed to be perfected through suffering. The Bible might say the pioneer of salvation or the founder of salvation or the author of salvation. All those are sort of the same thing. I like the term the architect of their salvation. It says he needed to be perfected through suffering. But then we ask, well, why would Jesus need to be perfected through suffering? Was he not already perfect? Yes, Jesus was perfect. But in becoming a man, he did not yet possess the intimate experience of suffering that every one of us knows very well. So in a certain way, the perfection of Jesus was an imperfection. He was too perfect because it did not yet include human suffering. Even if Jesus was a fully human being, we could still say to him, yes, Jesus, you're human and that's great, but you haven't really walked in my shoes. You haven't experienced the suffering like I've gone through. You don't really know what it's like to go through pain and agony and hurt. You haven't experienced this fallen and broken world like I have. You're just too pristine and you're too perfect to relate to what, to what I go through. You can't relate to me, Jesus. 
But because of everything that Jesus went through and all the suffering that he experienced, now he can look us right in the eye and he can say, yes, I know exactly what it's like. I too have suffered. I know what it's like to experience pain and sorrow. I even know what it's like to die. Therefore, verse 11 says that the sanctifier and the sanctified are of one family. And that was necessary. The one who makes holy and those who are being made holy are brothers. Brothers in humanity and brothers in suffering. So it says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's look at verse 14, because it's an important verse. It might be the most important verse in this passage. Verse 14 says here that that the Son of God took on flesh and blood. And it also says why. The Son did this in order to share in the humanity of the children in order to save them. 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. It is the death of Christ that put death to death. By his death, he destroyed the devil's power over death. We may ask here, well, I thought God had the power over life and death. Doesn't God have the power over life and death? Why does it say here that the devil has the power over death? In what sense does the devil have any power over death? Well, I think we can answer that question by looking at verse 15. Verse 15 says that there were all those who, who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Remember that common saying? I'm sure we've all heard it. The only two sure things in life are death and taxes. And taxes are not actually as uh, sure a thing, but death certainly is. We all know, every single one of us knows that, uh, that one day, Unless the Lord returns first, we shall all face death's door. And we shall have to walk through it. And death is a scary thing. It's a fearful thing. That's why we don't like to think about death. That's why we get a little uncomfortable when the pastor starts suddenly talking about death. That's why we push it to the very back of our minds. And we try our very best never to think about it. Our whole lives, without realizing it, we are held in slavery to the fear of death. And that fear, it's that fear that is the power of the devil. How he manipulates that fear and controls us through that fear of death. But the salvation brought by Jesus Christ gives a hope of eternal life that then breaks the power of fear and frees us from slavery to that fear. The devil cannot hold that fear of death 
over our heads anymore. He can no longer control any of us through that fear of death. Because Jesus has broken that fear. He has delivered us from that fear. We've been delivered from fear unto hope, which is a certain expectation of salvation and eternal life. Verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It is not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. The son took on flesh and blood. He took on humanity in order to help humans. If he had wanted to help angels, he would have taken on the nature of an angel. But he didn't do that. He took on flesh and blood. He became a human in order to help, more specifically, it says here, the offspring of Abraham. Does that mean the Jewish people? He became a human to help the Jews? No, this means both Jews and Gentiles who are offspring of Abraham by faith. That's what Paul had taught us in the book of Romans, that Abraham's offspring is comprised of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here is the second reason why the Son of God had to take on flesh and blood, why he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It was so that he would become the great and final high priest offering a perfect, atoning sacrifice for the sins of Christ's people. This is another way of saying Jesus took on flesh and blood. He was made like his brothers in every possible way so that he could represent us before the Father. When it says we have a high priest, that means we have a representative before God. This is why the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It was for his people, for his brothers, for his children, for his sheep, for his church, for his saints. In the last verse of the chapter, it, it ends chapter 2 on a great comfort here. It says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that word tempted there has a double meaning can mean more than one thing. So there's, there's a fullness of meaning here that isn't necessarily captured in our English translations. The word for tempted here also means to endure trials and hardships. It means tempted, yes, but it also can mean to endure trials and hardship. Therefore, what Hebrews is saying here is that because the Lord knows what it's like to suffer, Yes, because of temptation, but also to endure trials and hardships of various kinds. Because he knows what that's like, he is not only able to relate to our sufferings, but he's also able to help us in our trials, temptations, and hardships that we go through. There's that old hymn which says in the chorus, Jesus knows all about our struggles. 
He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Now we know that Jesus is no longer lowly. He's not the lowly Jesus anymore. He was during his life, but no more. He is in the highest possible place of majesty and splendor. But he is a merciful and faithful high priest. And he does know about all of our struggles. Because he was made like us in every way. So let us not neglect such a great salvation. Let us look to our Savior. Because all things have been set under his feet. And let us understand why he shared in our flesh and blood. So that he could truly be our representative high priest. Let us pray. Father God, we are indeed so thankful for your mighty word, which teaches us so many things about who you are. We thank you for this passage from Hebrews chapter 2. So much meat in it. So little time to unpack it. But such rich Such rich truths fall from it. And so, Father, I pray that we would reread this passage and meditate upon it throughout this coming week. That we would be convicted not to neglect such a great salvation so that we ourselves will not be in danger of drifting away from it. That we truly would grasp the fact that Jesus is in control of everything. Everything has been placed under his feet. Even if we can't see it yet, we look to the truth of the gospel for our encouragement. And Father, we are so thankful for the truth presented here that the Son of God took on the flesh and blood of his brothers to be made like them in every way so that he could be a faithful and merciful high priest, our great representative before you. For, Father, that is the heart and the essence of the gospel. And so we give you thanks for these things. Help us to understand these things according to our capacity, Father, so that our faith might be deepened, that we would be refreshed if we're feeling weary, that we'd be encouraged, that we would even be warned if we feel ourselves slipping or drifting away. So that you would be glorified in our lives, Father. We pray that we carry these these things in our hearts as we leave this place. So that you would be exalted in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.